Welcome to Disrupt, a podcast of the Cedarville University Center for Pharmacy Innovation. Today on the podcast, we will be discussing the role of pharmacists in emergency medication response to disasters with our guest, Dr. Shannon Manzi. Dr. Manzi currently serves as the Director of Safety and Quality for the Department of Pharmacy at Boston Children's Hospital. She is also an Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and serves as Lead Pharmacist for the MA1 Disaster Medical Assistance Team as part of the National Disaster Medical System, Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to Disrupt. I hope you are all able to take some time in this holiday season to rest and spend time with family. Thanks for tuning in to this episode with Dr. Shannon Manzi. Uh, Dr. Manzi received her Doctor of Pharmacy degree from the University of Rhode Island, and she has had the privilege of traveling the world as a pharmacist involved with emergency medical response and global health. In addition to being a pediatric pharmacist and a health systems pharmacy leader, she's also continued to be a leader in promoting pharmacist involvement in emergency response to disasters. Welcome to the podcast, Shannon. It's a pleasure to have you join us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Well, I don't want to belabor the point, so I'd love to just turn this over to you and ask you to tell your story. Tell us a little bit about maybe your background and training and how you ended up where you are today as a pharmacist. Sure. It is one of those stories that started out as a normal day as being a hospital pharmacist. I actually had started working in the emergency department as one of the first emergency department pharmacists way back in the day. Um, And I was having a normal morning, wandering around, answering questions about drug information. And all of a sudden, the director of the emergency department, Dr. Gary Fleischer, came to me and said, I need a pharmacist. I said, okay thinking toxicology kid in room 14 or something else. He said, no, I need a pharmacist for a disaster medical team. And I said, hmm, sure, how hard can that be? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, literally 18 months later, I finally was approved. It is a rigorous process to get through the federal onboarding for one of these disaster teams. Completely worth it, but definitely requires a lot of time and training and dedication. It uh, started my journey. I think this was 2000 and let's see, 2000. I started doing this and started the process. In 2001, of course, we had the um, horrible tragedy of 9-11 and I actually still was not completely authorized so the team went out the door with me, without me and that crushed me even though I knew my my application was in process I, I could not go because you must have your federal credentials to be on site for any any federal deployment and so in early of the next year that January I received my credentials and have been doing this for more than 20 years now. Uh, And I will tell you, it has been quite the journey, all types of different responses. Uh, Every single one is a new experience. You are not a disaster medical expert ever. And anyone that tells you that shouldn't tell you that because it changes depending on what the situation is and what the response is. There are some core principles that are always um, in the back of our minds and, and, you know, definitely a solid training all of those things, I totally agree with you, can probably be an expert on teaching the core training, but you have to be extremely flexible. And that was that is what I would tell everyone who wants to do this job. You will expect to not shower for two weeks. 
<laughs> and get to know your your 35 other team members very well like family. Uh, you will sleep in places where you never thought it was even possible, like a basketball court. Um, or you may deploy to uh, a mission where you're doing hospital augmentation and, and are in a hotel every night. So you really have to understand it can go from extremely austere to I'm doing hospital backfill. Uh, and it depends on the mission. So that's how I started. Um, my favorite quote ever was from my son. He was approximately, let's see, about that time, six or seven years old when Katrina happened. I was gone for a month and a half um, with back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back deployments. And at one point, we were watching later in the year a benefit concert for Katrina. And he looks at the screen and he said, we donated mommy for Katrina. And that mm. just really, you know, set it home as not only do they understand the the um, impact it makes on the family as well as, uh, you know, the individual who's deploying, but that we're giving back. And both of my children have, you know, grown up with this and now are adults and have done their own, you know, volunteering in their own in their own um, types of, of fields that they're in. So it's it's gratifying. It is really hard work, but it is um, totally worth it. Oh, so you've served primarily with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Um, so maybe we can get a, a bit more detail about what does that specifically look like? How do you know when you're going to be deployed? Is it a phone call or what does that process look like? That, that's a very good question. So obviously, over the course of 20 years, things have changed greatly, uh, including now we all have cell phones, which when we started out, that was not the case. Um, we are on call three months a year. So you know that these are your months. I could tell you my months, you know, four years from now, I know which months I'm going to be on call because it's a rotation. Of those, two of three months, you must be available in order to maintain your status on the team. And being available means that a six-week period from the midnight of the first of the month until the 13th day at midnight, you have to be available. And why is that? Because they could send you out on the 30th or the 31st of that month for starting your 14-day rotation. Uh, most of them are 14 days for what we call INCONUS, meaning the continental United States, and anything that is um, Hawaii or Alaska or anything international such as Haiti, those are usually starting out as a 21 day and can actually be extended beyond that. So we know way ahead of time when we are going to be on call and then we get notified. Now, a lot of us are CNN junkies or, or other weather channel <laughs> junkies, whatever you want to call it. Right. So we sort of know what's happening or going to happen for the notice events. The no-notice events, like a massive tornado, an earthquake, things that we're not as good at predicting, um, or if it was a terrorist incident, then those literally would come as a phone call or a page in the middle of the night waking you up. Um, you have to be available and ready to be at the airport within two hours. And so we are always packed and ready to go. And the airport can change because sometimes you'll fly military and we have to go out of the military um, airfield, or sometimes you'll be flying commercial or charter, which would mostly come out of the commercial airports. And sometimes you go on a train or a bus, or we've convoyed in cars before down to New York for Hurricane Sandy. So y you name it, we've probably pretty much traveled that way. 
Well, I, I can speak to this firsthand. I remember sitting at a conference just a few months ago with Shannon, uh, knowing that a hurricane was coming into some of the southern states. And, and she looked at me and said, well, I'm, I might get a phone call. Uh, I could be going anytime. So um, it seems and like I that did. is definitely the case. Yeah, and you did get a call. Yeah. So, so maybe t- that's probably been your most recent deployment, if I had to guess. So maybe tell us a little bit more about what that looked like. Sure. I was at a conference, as you said, and was giving a presentation, and I had an inkling that Hurricane Ian was going to probably do some damage to Florida, but we didn't know at that point other than we were on call. And so I had let the organizers of the conference know that I probably was going to have to cut out early. I did. I I, I was able to stay and do my presentation, but I did have to leave the very next morning. off schedule. I was I was t- intending to stay a little bit longer and flew home to rally with the team and grab my gear. Uh, luckily, I am also married to a team member. So if I was not able to fly home, he would have brought my gear, which is so much fun to carry two people's gear. <laughs> <I'm sure. laughs> if you can't carry it, you can't bring it is basically uh, is, is the tenant. Uh, and and they, we would have uh, met further down towards the southern states where we were going to stage. And at that point, uh, rallied with the team, flew down to Atlanta, uh, where we ended up getting rental cars and going a little bit further south. We staged, waited out the storm, and then you have to wait. And this is the hard part for a lot of people for federal deployments, because you could be pre-staged prior to a notice event, but they have to do a damage assessment. They have to know where to send you. They can't just say, go drive and find something. Uh, obviously, that is not the best use of resources. So they look for folks to go into the field earlier. That's called the IMT, uh, they're the incident management team. And there will be a core group of two or three or four of them, safety officer, generally someone who has experience as a team commander being out in the field. And they liaison with the local and the state governments to say, where is the worst damage? Where do you have healthcare infrastructure issues that you now need federal um, response to? The declaration of a federal disaster has to happen before we even step foot out of our own doors. And so that is done either ahead of the storm, knowing that something may happen, or it is done after the fact, um, and then we get sent out the door. For these large hurricanes and storms that are coming, we are often... um, pre-deployed so that we are closer to where we're going to set up. And then you uh, get your mission assignment and you get back in your convoy and you head to wherever you're going to set up your either your tents or if you're going to use a building of opportunity where that is and, and um, set up your, your complete either uh, field hospital or you may just be billeting there and, and that's where you sleep and eat and and uh, then you work inside a hospital or a, or a, a pre-standing facility. Okay, great. I, I love those details. It helps me to kind of have a feel for what this looks like. So we've mentioned hurricanes and a number of uh, natural disasters. What are some of the other disasters that you've responded to over the years? Sure. Uh, so earthquake being the big one in Haiti, uh, absolutely. Our team actually was in Iran in 2003 for the BAM earthquake. I was on the second team uh, that was slated to go and there was no second team that went out. So I I unfortunately did not, but my husband actually was on the ground in Iran um, and some of the only Americans that have been on the ground in Iran for that response. Uh, the World Trade Center, the, uh, the bombing at the Atlanta Olympics, Wildfires. I have not done wildfires or ice storms, uh, but that is something that 
definitely have uh, been sent out before. I did respond to North Dakota to the Red River floods. And I can't even remember that year, but it was a while ago uh, and in the middle of a blizzard in North Dakota. Hard to find your way in the middle of a blizzard in North Dakota, by the way. Um, <laughs> been to uh, uh, Alaska and the most recent deployments that we've done have actually been for COVID. So we will go to the different areas where the COVID rates are the highest and the hospital staff is absolutely exhausted because either they've had no time off or they're out with COVID themselves and go in and augment those hospitals. And we have done, as a team, I think we've done six COVID missions from the very first one of receiving patients coming off of those cruise ships to the most recent one, which we did uh, earlier this year to Detroit. Okay, so let's get a bit more granular about the role uh, that you have when you're deployed. So I understand every scenario may be totally different, but maybe you can pick a couple to help us understand what essentially a day in the life of a pharmacist might look like when you're responding to a disaster. Well, first of all, you have to be willing to do anything else that the team will do. So not I'm not talking about outside your scope for patient care. I'm talking about you need to set up tents. You need to dig pit toilets. You need to be able to um, have uh, the, the skills, and that's what you learn through the training with the team, to be able to set up your base of operations or what we call a boo. And that everybody gets trained in. I um, am also the EMR specialist for the team. So I set up our electronic health record. Yes, in the field, even in the middle of nowhere, uh, we have a contained electronic health record with some um, really tough books that just like the military uses for their computers. And we are able to document our care and then pass that on to the next receiving facility. Because sometimes we are the area where we stabilize someone and then we will transport them or have help transporting them with our other partners in the federal government to a final you know, uh, care destination for hospital or, or nursing home or wherever else they may be going. So I will do anything from med history or med rec, which is my favorite, W-R-E-C-K, because most of them <laughs> are uh, when they're coming with no records. So remember that this, this affected population either has been transported to you to a shelter from a nursing home and they may or may not have records with them. They have been, they've lost their homes, so they've lost everything, including their medications and maybe their records. There's a lot of um, work that goes in behind the scenes of trying to figure out what these patients are actually taking and what they need and what their disease states are. You know, this is like walking in somewhere and not knowing any patients and then like an emergency room, <laughs> trying to figure out what is wrong with you, what has been wrong with you uh, chronically, and then how do we help without making things worse? So we, our missions really are different depending on what we're doing. If you go into a hospital augmentation, obviously that's easier, right? You have their electronic health record, you know what's wrong with the patient in front of you, and you have their formulary or, or their medications. If we have a base of operations and a tent, for those of you that are old enough, you'll love this. It's it's just like a mash tent. For those of the, mm -hmm. you that are too young, Google it. Um, <laughs> but basically, that's what we do. And so we are self-sustaining for 72 hours, and we bring our own medications. Our cash has to be limited because of the footprint that we have to be able to you know jam it into. So one of my jobs, and one of my big jobs, is one burn rate. How much are we using, and how much do we have left? We know we may not get resupply for at least 72 hours, if not longer, depending on where you are and what the situation is. 
you know, trucks can't even, if we've had to be helicoptered in and trucks can't come on the road, then we're going to have to have our supplies helicoptered in and how, you know, coordinating all of that takes some time. So you've got to be able to make things last. You are um, basically working side by side with your chief medical officer, your CMO, because they're the ones that are you know, directing the care for the providers and, and what we're going to be doing in that location. You also have to understand the diseases of that region and what is most prominent, both chronic and acutely, and then layer on top of that your knowledge of uh, austere medicine after a disaster. So do we see more Vibrio? Do we see more infections like secondary to hepatitis A or even cholera, which we had to deal with in Haiti? Mm -hmm. So those are the types of things that you have to layer on top of that, have those discussions and really watch your uh, medication supply. I've done everything from making a rehydration solution for pediatrics to um, making sure that we could stretch our morphine that we knew weren't, wasn't going to get resupplied and our syringes, which we didn't have enough of. So, you know, you have to, you have to really get creative about, you know, how you use these things and, um, and how you treat the patient in front of you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, that makes me think of a question, which is simply what skills do you feel like a pharmacist has to have to be successful in this role? I think you've mentioned flexibility mm -hmm. clearly, I think yeah. creative problem solving you've kind of alluded to, but how would you list a, a set of skills that make someone effective in this role? Definitely, as you just said, those two things are top. You have to understand that the uh, rules and the very regimented protocols that you use every day at home uh, are not there. And it's not to say that we are not doing safe care, but that you have to be very creative in the environment that you find yourself in. And you're also going to have to really use your knowledge of drug information and your resources. You may or may not have electricity. You may or may not have internet. So pre-planning and making sure you have those things downloaded and then you have a solar charger or Whatever it is, if you want to take paper with you, but understanding you got to carry that, it gets heavy after a while. Making sure you have your resources. Um, how long can things stay out of the refrigerator? All the way to the correct, you know, immunization sites for a three-month-old. Those are the types of questions you will be asked. I think the most successful uh, in this role have been the folks who have hospital experience or emergency department experience, because you will have very sick patients who they will, you know, some of them will need to have code responses or others. And in other cases, we've done missions where it is prescription refill. And so pharmacists who have a retail background are very helpful in those situations. I, there are multiple pharmacist slots on each team and we try really hard to make sure you get a mix of folks because there will be instances where you know you're going to do ICU medicine as backfill. You know it before you go out the door. That's that's what our COVID missions have been primarily. So you really want someone who understands ED ICU medicine uh, and in a hospital system. We have done the other ones where you are a um, going to a shelter and you're taking care of nursing home patients and people with the background of medication provision in those situations have been wonderful. Uh, I, I will tell you, I've been a pediatric pharmacist for more than 25 years now. And if you ask me the name of an Alzheimer's drug, I can't tell you. That's <laughs> right. something I've got to look it up. So it really depends on the population, but also having your resources makes you very, very successful. Some IV skills uh, come in extremely handy. 
That's a, that's a great list. And uh, being both of us pediatric pharmacists by training, I can't help but think how at least a, a few of those learning to uh, be creative and dealing with things where you don't necessarily have the evidence in front of you can be really helpful in this role as well. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the makeup of your disaster response team that you work with. How many people, what disciplines are uh, represented as part of that team? Yes. Yeah, so we have a great representation of folks and we I'll start with the prescribers. So they, the advanced practitioners, they can be physicians and you have to have a physician in the CMO role, but we also have PAs and NPs and CRNAs that make up our team of providers. Then we have uh, nurses and most of our team is registered nurses, but there are different uh, types of nurses that can be on the teams. There are respiratory therapists who are gold. There are mental health specialists who are also gold um, and the pharmacists. And then we have some uh, paramedics and EMTs and they will often do the triaging and they'll do some bedside patient care as well as the EMTs often make up some of our logistics uh, folks. There are communication roles. So people who are ham radio operators plus understand uh, computer systems and different types of uh, satellite phones, things like that are very key. And so we'll have a communication specialist with us. And then we have a safety specialist with us who often has a background in law enforcement or is a current law enforcement officer who is now um, federally deployed because the team safety is also huge and we need to make sure we have accountability at all times and that we're not putting our, our own team at risk in whatever environment we're in. So that is the majority of, um, of the team members. We have 35 go out the door as a full team, but you also can be broken down into strike teams. So you they, they might send seven of you to do a smaller mission or 14 and 14. It really depends. Uh, but the traditional model has been the 35 uh, that go out the door that make up the team for the base of operations. Well, you know, as well as I do, we talk a lot about interprofessional collaboration in healthcare today, and, and, and it plays a role really in all aspects of healthcare, but I can see where it takes on a heightened importance when you're responding to disasters or, or emergencies in different places. So could you tell us a bit more about how the role of interprofessional collaboration helps to provide more effective services when you're deployed and responding to the needs of people that have been impacted by a disaster? Absolutely. And it's not only key just to make things run, but it's critical for patient care because if we're not all on the same page, we either won't have the medications we need or we won't be providing the correct treatment for things that they may not see all the time. So we do um, daily huddles and sometimes twice daily briefings, depending on what uh, the situation is. It is absolutely critical we're all on the same page as to what we're seeing what we're treating how we're treating it how many days of medication can we give for them to go before they can find a pharmacy that actually has a few limited hours that is open uh, what are we telling patients around that how are we using the rx locator and what services are available to them in addition to the medication piece there's the where do i get clean water where do i get food what are the FEMA services that are available right now? Who do I go to if I need shelter? So those 
all of those pieces are extremely important and we play a big role. And I will tell you that usually there's only one pharmacist on at a time for 12 hour shifts. It's so two go out the door and it's day and night. And so usually it's just you and the rest of the team for whatever shift you're on. And and everything you do is extremely interprofessional and you'll do a lot of drug information or how fast do I run this? I, I, you know, the normal questions that, that we get in the emergency room or in the hospital now um, around IV therapies are, are, are big, but also just in general can, you know, patient counseling and who's doing what pieces of the, of the medication use cycle, who's getting the med history. If there's only one of you, then you oftentimes have to teach how to get a good med history because it may not be the day-to-day role of the medic who sometimes will write down, you know, maybe uh, a quick scratch, but we might need more, especially if we're keeping these patients in a shelter. So uh, that kind of brings me to a question, maybe that's a, a bit more personal, and that is simply, are there any moments from your work in this space that are most memorable for you? Oh, There's so many, to be honest with you. I will say Haiti, of course, because of the magnitude of the death, the disaster, the resilience of the people that came to us. And I still to this day am shocked by how they would be living in these tent cities, literally a blanket over two sticks, but they would come to you pristinely clean in their best outfits because they felt like getting healthcare was a privilege. And it was amazing, to me, that still gives me chills. Uh, it was just unbelievable resilience in the face of utter, utter chaos and disaster. Um, you know, the other ones I can remember being so exhausted. You would think, as we talk about some of the missions we've done with the shelter missions, you now have patients who you're going to be very familiar with for the next 14 days until another team either relieves you or we find a new new place for them to go. And a lot of them are nursing home patients or um, some mental health patients and others. And we often think, oh, I'm going to be so tired when I'm out in the field and I'm working in these areas with no running water and all. But the the shelter missions are actually extremely exhausting because there really is no downtime. You are providing all the care for these patients, unlike in a hospital where you're doing a shift and then you're leaving. This is, this is you know, your world for the next 14 days. And I, I remember for Hurricane Sandy being more exhausted than I was for Katrina. And I know that sounds crazy, but um, it was a continuous, almost 24-hour mission all the time. Um, yeah, so many. I, 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 it's hard to pinpoint all of them, but I think the I think the Haiti deployment sticks out for me the most. Okay, and that uh, kind of leads to me just asking a question that might relate to the the last answer, and that is, what's the most enjoyable aspect of this type of work? You are so grateful to be there to be able to help them. I I can't even explain to you, the patients will come in and say, oh, thank you for being here. Thank you for doing all this. It's our honor. It's our privilege to be there. My house is fine. My family is fine. I'm going back there in 14 days. My job is fine. So it is is truly an honor to be able to go and do this um, and to meet the people 
and to understand different cultures, even within our own country, of how things operate here versus how they operate back home. Uh, and there are very different practices of medicine across this country. And it's uh, been a, a huge learning experience. And honestly, my deployment family is my second family. You can't replace these experiences or opportunities and, and people who have not been in those situations can't truly understand what it is like so they are a group of uh, a family that understands you and disaster response is not for everyone and that's okay but disaster response requires you to understand that your reality when you come home is not everyone else's reality. Mm -hmm. And so I can tell you, I have been exceedingly frustrated when I come home and folks are still arguing about the same policy we've been arguing about for two years. I'm like, I don't care, just make a decision. You know, <laughs> And you realize you, it, it, to you, it doesn't matter anymore because you just saw horrible destruction or um, death or people who are in real uh, extremis versus what might be going on in front of you. Uh, and it's the same with your family. And I think for those of us who have families who have lived with us for a long time, they totally get it. But if you're new to this and you are struggling with those emotions when you come home, that team, that mental health support within the team is hugely important because they can be your sounding board and say, hey, this is totally normal. And you might actually be fine for two weeks after you get home. And then a month later, you feel like you're so angry at people and you're starting to process what you saw and what you did. It seems to me that being involved in this type of work can really bring clarity to the rest of life. I mean, maybe I'm getting a bit too uh, ethereal here, but um, I, it just seems that it it brings things into proper perspective. And so I, I would love to hear what has this work taught you about yourself and others as a result of responding to the medical needs of people following a disaster? Definitely learned about sustainable practices, meaning uh, not, not environmental, although that's great too, but more along the lines of you need to understand what they're, where they're coming from, from both their cultural and their health perspective. And we are only there as a temporizing measure. So if you say, for example, I've now recently figured out that this patient has diabetes, or maybe they knew they had diabetes, but they weren't being treated before. I can't put them on something that is chronic that in when it runs out in two to three to weeks and they can't replace it, I've only done more harm. Mm -hmm. So you really need to understand going in what those cultural and beliefs and availability of resources is. And now I take that in everything I do every day and say, hey, how sustainable is this particular, you know, uh, solution that we're trying to do? And what is the downstream effect later on? And is this the right thing to do or is it not? Is it just a Band-Aid that then will be gone? And I'm not saying that disaster response is a Band-Aid that will then be gone. Well, it's, it's providing an important piece at the time for critical acute care and maybe bridging the gap for some chronic care that already is in process. But you tend to want to take your academic level medicine and then practice it there. And that is not what you can do. Um, and that is a piece that I am uh, one of the folks that has to teach new people who are going out the door, new physicians, uh, new NPs who are gung-ho and want to do all of these great things. And not that we're not doing great things, but you've got to keep it in perspective of what they can then do once you're gone. Uh, 
um, that is that has been key and has also helped me look at a whole bunch of other different situations in my life that way. Oh, that's good. I've asked about some of the most enjoyable aspects of the work, but I want to ask the corollary question, which is, what do you find to be the most difficult aspect of disaster medical response? Is it the exhaustion, the emotional toll, something totally different? How would you answer that? I would say it is definitely the exhaustion and the frustration sometimes. So you, from your perspective, think that things should move faster. We have had uh, multiple times where it's hurry up and wait. That is the that is the federal way. Hurry up and wait. Get out the door in two hours. Get to where you're going. Oh, wait, now sit here for two days. <laughs> that is very hard when you are seeing on your phone or TV or getting messaged by other people, hey, this horrible thing is happening. Why aren't you already there? This is part of the process and learning to accept that while it is um you know, being touted or uh, it is it is extremely visible to other people that these bad things are going on. But again, behind the scenes and doing the assessment of where you're really needed and where you can do the most good is a process that takes time. And uh, that that has been hard. Um, the frustration piece I have learned to overcome, but it it takes multiple deployments before you truly understand the way this works. And the other piece is just the sheer exhaustion. You will <laughs> you will do 12 to 16 hour shifts. You will fall asleep standing up uh, and then you will get up in four hours and do it all over again. And the first few days just fly by because it's all about setup and it's all about getting the processes in place. And then you get into what we call Groundhog Day, where you're doing it over and over again. Um, <laughs> and and then you're you're starting to get more set and then it's OK, time to go home. Um, and so those things are, are something you have to learn and are the hardest part to learn. It strikes me that you work in normally a, a pretty resource rich environment at Boston Children's, right? And then you're going into these spaces where you have to work with what you've got. Um, I have to imagine too that maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like for this type of work, it's probably 90% preparation and then 10% is the work on the ground. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about how do you even prepare for this? Of course, you're on call, you know when it happens, but how does your team work together to have what you need when you are deployed? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Part of it is training. So it's not all stuff. Part of it is training together as a team multiple times a year and when you're not when you're not deployed and understanding each other's skills and understanding what you what you can and cannot do within the realm of the federal response. Then it is the list. We all have our lists. I don't leave without pink duct tape. Uh, everybody on the team knows that if it's marked with pink duct tape, that belongs to the pharmacy. <laughs> if it is, uh, it, you'll, you'll bring your dosing cards, you'll bring your calculator that will work with solar charging. You, you get this list, right? And then that's always packed in your gear. Uh, the things that we need for say the medications those will come with what we call the cash that's part of the load that we get uh, to set up but your preparation of how you're going to exist in this 
camping environment, for lack of a better better terminology, for the next two weeks is important. And so you have to not only worry about, okay, what do I need to do my job professionally? What do I need for myself? You can't leave without your own medications. And, and then there are some restrictions on being on the team because you have to have a certain level of health um, to be able to deploy. Then there's also the understanding that I may have to sleep in a tent with 35 other people and I better have my earplugs because a lot of them <laughs> snore. Uh, you know, just really, truly understanding the, that packing list and what you're going to need both professionally and personally. And, and as a team, we've, we've put that out. Um, and so all of our new people do that, but they also go through exercises of learning how to pack and what to pack. I can't imagine the amount of time that uh, that goes into just simply being ready, but uh, that's helpful for us to know. Uh, another question that I have is, how do you balance this role with other responsibilities as a pharmacist? Uh, again, you you hold multiple roles, um, and and how do you balance those also as a person? Uh, I will tell you that has evolved over twenty years. When I started, I had small children. And so making sure that we had the plans in place for which grandparents are helping out and they knew which months would be on call. So you had to have that, that organization ahead of time, because then if you had your two hour notice, you, you had to make sure that you had something in place. And I would argue you need to do that if you have pets. You need to do that if you have um, older family members that you, you take care of or any uh, personal responsibilities to other people, because this it, this will require a level of planning before you ever sign on the dotted line that I'm gonna be part of these teams. Once you do that, uh, and you have something that you feel comfortable with, um, and, and it's a solid plan, then you have to think about your job. So for federal response, we're actually covered under something called USERA. And that basically is the same protection that the National Guard and other armed forces have, where you have a you have a normal job, um, is particularly relevant to the National Guard, and then you're called up. So this act actually protects our jobs uh, in the such that my job can't fire me for being deployed. Now, they've also grown with me over the 20 years and 25 years that I've been here at Boston Children's. And it is, uh, they are just as proud of me for doing this. And it is definitely something that you and your coworkers have to discuss ahead of time as to if I go out, who's gonna cover my, in this case, administrator role. In, in the days when I was working in the ED, who's going to cover my ED shifts while I'm gone? But that was, again, it was known that I'm on call this month and that I may have to go somewhere. And they're watching CNN, too. So they know that, <laughs> hey, I bet you're going. We better, you know, make sure that it's all set. But for people who are worried about their job protection, it is covered under the federal act and they um, will defend you. And they... Uh, the government will um, have your back if there are any issues with that. Well, that's great to know. I, I truly had no idea how that worked, but um, it's neat to hear that there actually are um, supports for having people from medical um, the medical community be involved while still making sure that their jobs are protected back at home. So if our listeners are like me, they're probably thinking, all right, I need to learn more about this. Maybe now's not the right time, but this is something that I might be interested in doing in the future. So 
uh, I, uh, let me just ask, is there a need for more pharmacists to be involved in disaster response? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, so <laughs> the teams are always recruiting and, you know, uh, there's a turnover. But I would say before you even get to the federal level, you need to understand if if this type of work is for you. So the first steps I have people uh, who are interested in doing is you may want to explore your local CERT team. Um, and that's the civilian emergency response teams. You can Google that. Most areas have CERTs. And they provide some baseline training that you're going to need. So um, we talk about incident command a lot. So there are courses that are free from the government that are called ICS 100 and 200. You definitely want to take those. And they also will be part of your CERT training because they, they lay out the framework for how these types of teams work. The next piece I would say is, you know, get involved in your state responses and your community responses. So I don't know um, if every state board of pharmacy does that this, but the four that I have licenses with ask me every time I research, you know, um, uh, you know, get re-credentialed that are you going to be part of our disaster response? Now, that's also gets a little tricky, right? Because mm -hmm. if something happens, the feds own me. And then I could do a state response if I'm not being deployed to the federal government. And then, of course, your your institution is going to want to know where you are and if they need you. Uh, so balancing those things is important. Uh, and then if you know, you are interested in the federal response service. There definitely is under the National Disaster Medical Service, UK, or under ASPR, the um, Administration for Strategic Preparedness Response. You can um, look that up online, and there are all of the requirements that you would have to meet in order to join the team. Okay, some other practical questions then. So how often are you deployed? You have your three months when you're on call. Would you say each of those three months, you're deployed every year, or are there some years you're not? Um, and then secondly, is there compensation um, for uh, the work that you do in this space? Yes, so the deployments are unpredictable. You could go out multiple times in a year, like we have for COVID, or you'll have hurricanes that are back-to-back, -back, like Irma and Maria in 2017, or you don't do anything for three years in a row. I think between 2004 and 2007, we didn't do anything, if I remember. Oh, no, no, Katrina was 2005. So after that, there was a gap of about three years where we didn't, there were no responses. Uh, it has definitely ramped up both with global warming and the bigger storms and the more damage that they're doing, as well as obviously our public health <laughs> problems with uh, COVID that we have been deployed more in these last two years than we ever have. I don't it's very hard to say, you know, how you would predict this, but you could average it out to once a year. But honestly, you'll have years where you do two or three, and then you'll have years where you don't do any. So that's a little bit harder. For compensation, yes, we are. We're intermittent federal employees. So when you go out the door, you actually are now paid by the government and not by your job. Um, nobody does this for the money. We'll just Absolutely. leave it at that. <laughs> So you'd mentioned uh, that there are CERTs, which are, are those local response teams. There are also other civilian organizations as well that pharmacists can get involved in. I, I think one that I was made aware of was Samaritan's Purse, and I believe they even did COVID field hospitals in different areas of the U.S. and the world. But uh, are, what are some of those other organizations that you are aware of that are involved in disaster response? 
So there are quite a few NGOs or non-governmental organizations that are involved in in, uh, in disaster response or global health. So I do want to separate disaster response from global health because disaster response is the acute phase. You go in within 24, 48 hours of some type of disaster and provide care as a uh, as an intermediate until more uh, services can be developed there. Global health, on the other hand, often is going into an area that's underserved, but is has not necessarily had an acute incident that has happened. And so the two are very different in the training. Again, the whole sustainability of what you're doing is extremely important, um, probably more so in global health, because that is the reason why you're going, is to sort of bridge and make sure that then whatever you do is, is sustainable down the road. So there are uh, quite a few non-governmental organizations that do both. And Samaritan Purse is one. Um, their multiples are either religiously affiliated and there are others that are not, uh, Doctors Without Borders. There are um, other local church-based non-governmental organizations that oftentimes will go out and, and do these types of things. Uh, and then they do what's called medical missions where it is less again, about disaster response and more about going and providing childhood immunizations for clinics this time of year, every year in this particular country. Uh, so definitely lots of different ways to get involved and to do things if disaster response is not necessarily um, enticing, but providing care, you know, in, in more of a chronic way. Yeah, the global health piece is, is really important. Oh, that's a helpful distinction. Thanks for sharing that. So one last question for you, and, and you've provided some of this information already, but if you had to outline three or four steps for a pharmacist or a pharmacy student that was interested in learning more about this work, what would be some suggestions that you have? Talk to someone who does it. I'm happy to answer emails all the time. I, I will uh, more than, more than be more than happy to field questions. Uh, then look at your life and say, could I leave? for two to three weeks at a time. And if I did, what would I have to put in place to make that happen? The third thing would be do your research, understand the organization that you're going with and what the expectations for your role is. In some cases, you may be uh, dispensing medications. In others, you may be doing more of a consultative role of doing med rec or doing med histories or uh, what is the best therapy for this particular indication and you may not dispense any medications. Or it may be that you're making IVs while things are shaking around you with aftershocks and you're trying to keep it out of your sterile area. Um, I might have done that once or twice. <laughs> and uh, the fourth thing would be get your references together, whatever it is, your resources that you would want to take. Um, use packing lists, use others who have done this and can provide you with some information as to what's going to serve you best when you get out in the field. Great. Well, Shannon, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. I learn so much from you every time I get to um, hear from you or chat with you. So we're so thankful that you've come on to, to talk about disaster response. And um, wow, I'm, I'm uh, going to have to go do some research on my own right now to find out a little bit more about it. So thank you again for taking some of your time today. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I, I'm passionate about this. I love to talk about this. So uh, apologies. But uh, <laughs> that's, that's what I, I, I do love. I do love what I do. Yep. No apologies needed. Thanks again. <laughs> Thanks. You have been listening to Disrupt 
a podcast from the Cedarville University Center for Pharmacy Innovation. If you enjoyed listening today, please subscribe and share this podcast with others. Thanks for listening.